This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Joar. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joar, and today is Wednesday, July 3rd, 2019. My guest is Sasha Segan of PC Mag. Hi, Sasha. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Uh, ready to head out for the holiday weekend. Yeah, that's right. Holiday time. It's kind of nice because we had Pride in San Francisco this past weekend. So there's a lot of celebration going on there. And then, of course, now is the national holiday coming up. So I think a lot of people are really enjoying this <laughs> little interruption of usual programming. Yeah, and it's it's funny because uh, I'm constantly bouncing around the country testing 5G in various places right now. So it's nice to just have a couple of days when I know I'm not going to have to head out to whatever the latest 5G launch is. Yeah, and I actually want to pick your brain about that. But the thing I want to talk about first is this crazy news that hit Saturday. I think it was Saturday that uh, um, the Huawei ban might be in some way lifted or lifting. Um, I haven't really followed too tightly the news since then, but from my quick research, it appears that nothing has been formally confirmed, though. So do you think this is happening? So Huawei is... So what's going on in our government is incoherent. I, I don't think... Well, surprise. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't think there is one coherent strategy. I think the president himself... Uh, thinks that Huawei is a useful pawn in larger trade negotiations for soybeans or whatever. But there are a significant number of Republican senators who believe that Huawei is a uh, is a deadly spy operation that's going to suck down all of our intelligence and kill us all and must be eliminated. So <laughs> There are these two competing power centers, even within our administration, and one of them being the guy in charge. Um, you know, he wants to put Huawei on the table as a card to be traded for something else. And some of the other ones, being certain senators, being certain defense people, want to take a stand and say absolutely no Huawei ever. And I think what we're seeing is the tension between those two groups. Do you not think that our president, uh, that, you know, we make a lot of fun of Trump here on the show, but but don't you think that he might have some ulterior motives, maybe some buddies in China or in Russia that would have benefited financially from Huawei's downfall? Because they've already lost 60% of their sales or something. It sounded pretty bad like a few weeks ago. And, and I'm wondering if like, it's like, a, you know, he's short selling, basically. He's just bringing them down. I, I haven't been able to follow the money and find any financial incentive there. And Russia actually uses Huawei equipment very heavily. Russia is very Okay, so it wouldn't be Huawei. in their best interest. Right. Um, but I really see an echo of what happened with ZTE here, where Trump was very, very clearly, he just found a screw he could turn on the Chinese government. Yeah, to, to put pressure get, on them. Right, yeah. to put pressure on them to get something else out of them. And I think that's purely how he sees Huawei, as opposed to, say, you know, how some of the Republican senators see Huawei, which is in a very, very different light. Yeah, no, I, I, I can see the dual strength of forces are at play here. I, I'm just wondering more like, you know, he, Trump was known so well for like 
you know, shorting stocks in, in the past, like when he was a businessman that I'm just kind of like, Hmm. But anyway, what I'm more interested in, and I think my audience is more interested in, and you know, this is, is what the potential ramifications, if there is a relaxing of this ban happening. And, and I'm, I mean, we're all pretty excited, right? I mean, obviously it might mean that Huawei might be able to continue using uh, American company products, including Android, and might forge ahead making fantastic devices. Because the the big thing for me about this Huawei ban, you know, has really been a a uh, you know a, a major hit on innovation. Because I really feel that Huawei has single handedly really pushed Samsung and Apple in the last two years in terms of innovation on this on the mobile front on smartphones. And and with them out of the picture, I'm I was worried that we'd start seeing some stagnation again. So that's that's to me. I, I want to see it lifted simply because I want to see these Huawei phones with these crazy features come out. Yeah, I like innovation. I like competition. They are absolutely innovative. Um, I do think they aren't the only innovative competitive force out there. I think no. the BBK brands. What all the BBK brands are doing is amazing. But they don't and, have a really uh, strong presence in compared to Huawei yet, even in Europe. You know what I'm saying? Like that's that's comparatively, they're most more China based, right? I mean, um, OnePlus being the exception. Yeah, they're growing. They're growing. I mean, what what Huawei has that the others don't, fortunately or unfortunately, is that Huawei has this infrastructure business, and Huawei sells its phones for cost or below cost to uh, carriers that it has sold infrastructure to. And so as a result, it has basically bought market share around the world. Right. And yes, it makes very good phones, but we can't overlook the fact that its infrastructure business has been subsidizing its handset business. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think I think that the thing for me is just like, like, you know, like a lot of Trump things, this kind of came out of nowhere. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, maybe this is uh, this is the beginning of a of a better of a of a return to somewhat normalcy in terms of of the mobile the mobile landscape um, because it's shaken things up this this since May, right? I mean, it's only been a month and a half or something, a month, and it's yeah. like, wow, what a disaster it's been so far. The effects now, of it. I think I think that uh, if I were Huawei this would have put a certain fear into me and i would absolutely be developing my own non-android operating system this hangmeng that we're reading about yeah um i would not be falling right back into the patterns and positions that i had before i would have a backup plan and i would argue they already did so you think they were working on all of this before Oh yeah, I I think that they didn't think it was gonna happen as it did and as quickly and with the strength it did. But I think that they were ready for a contingency. If you are a business that size and you're a business person running a business that size, it it is you know irresponsible not to have a backup plan for suppliers, and it's also yeah, also and- responsible towards your shareholders. Um, so you know, I think it's a it's it's a tricky thing. But I, I would assume that somebody had cried wolf and said, "We need a backup plan." Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about Huawei is that it has just grown so fast. Samsung has a backup plan, but Samsung has had a, had a backup plan since 2010. And Samsung I've been is, wearing their backup plan on my wrist, and it's actually not bad at all, to be honest with you. I'm wearing at a least backup on my plan wrist. Too. <laughs> but if you remember, this is actually Samsung's Tizen, which we're talking about, is Samsung's third backup plan. Okay, oh, right. before that, they had Bada. 
Bada, oh my God, I reviewed a Bada phone when I was at Engadget, you know that? I, I, di- I didn't know any had come out and anywhere we could no, actually buy them. I got them to send me one. I will find the review and link it in the show notes. That's uh, pretty great. But it just shows that Samsung has had backup plans for ages, but Huawei has really only been a big handset company for the past maybe two and a half, three years. And so they're having to they're having to learn all of this and make all of these strategies very, very fast. And they're catching up. They're catching up on their on their hardware, which I, I first reviewed Huawei phones in 2011, 2012. They were not very good. They have caught up on their hardware and they're catching up on their strategy too. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, look, let's see what happens. We don't have, obviously, with this holiday week, people, nothing's going to be, you know, officialized until for a little while. But it looks like things are relaxing. And I'm excited about that because I, look, I have to admit, Huawei's done some incredible stuff in the last year, particularly the last year, but the last two, three years. Since the P9 for me, it's really been like, oh, I need to pay attention to these folks. And... I sure have. I've always been pretty excited by the Mate products. I wasn't really wowed by the P10. The P9 was great, uh, the, but the P20, obviously, the P20 series was solid, and the P30 is really, really incredibly great. Uh, and the Mate, you know, the, the last Mate 20 series was uh, was pretty, pretty amazing as well. And and to me, you know, I'm just selfish. I'm just like, if I look at all the phones I have in, available on my desk, basically, like all the flagships today, like the ones that stand out the most, right, other than you'd expect the iPhones and Samsung phones to stand out because they're solid phones all around. But it's really the BBK group phones, right? OnePlus, Oppo, Vivo, and the Huawei phones. And and Xiaomi, yeah, Xiaomi still, I feel they're kind of doing stuff, but I don't think that they're nearly as exciting. You know, there's a lot of people who want to see Xiaomi in the US. And as much as I'd like that too, competition is healthy. I don't feel like, I mean, first of all, they need a major revamp of their of their user experience to be in the same way as Oppo and Vivo, to be honest. But at least OnePlus has, BBK has OnePlus that, that has stock, pretty much stock Android. And and in, and I think Huawei's user experience, especially in the last two phones, the, the Mate 20 series and the, Mate, and the P30 series, has been still, you know, it's still a skin. I don't like it as much as a stock Android, but I feel that it's, you know, Western Google Play Services Landia compatible, right? Like it works pretty well. They've ironed out a lot of the things that always made me mad. Um, you know, there's still room for improvement, but I feel that of all the skins out there, you know, they're pretty much like LG now. It's like annoying, but not like horrible, you know? Yeah, as 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 I said, Huawei is learning and changing and growing and improving very, very fast. Systematically, every six months, they are getting noticeably better. And as regards Xiaomi, Xiaomi's sales pitch and Xiaomi's attraction has almost always been around uh, decent quality for mid-range price. And they're very appealing in markets which actually have a mid-range phone market. The U.S. essentially does not. Uh, Phones between $300 and $500 mean nothing to us. And so as a result, Xiaomi just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really have a, a sales point for the market that we're in, as right. opposed to India, where they pay for everything up front and every dollar matters. For sure. But I mean, still, you know, for a while there, I was really excited about what they were doing. Like, uh, I just recently got a Mi Mix 3 to play with, not this 5G version, the fourth, the, the older Snapdragon 845 version that was announced in the fall. And... 
it's a nice phone other than the user experience, which drives me crazy. But um, the hardware is nice, but it doesn't really feel like as special as a OnePlus 7 Pro or or a, a P30 Pro or, or even a, a Galaxy S10 Plus, in my opinion, in terms of like this foundational solidity that you right. have. How much does phones. it cost? Well, it's half. The, it's in the five hundred dollar range, right? There so you it's, go. It's, yeah, I mean, look, but but my point is, you can buy a OnePlus Seven non-Pro for five hundred dollars. That is solid, right? Like, I mean, so I'm just saying, like, it, it's solid, but it's not like wow, you know. Like, I think that you know this because you also look at Chinese phones. I think a lot of American customers and my 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 listeners are a lot of them are in India and other parts of the world, so they're a little more. They're not your typical audience, but I think that we know that you can buy a really great phone to for $250 made by the Chinese. Like, like for example, um, it's actually interestingly Xiaomi, but it's the Redmi brand, the K20 mm -hmm. Pro, right? Redmi K20 Pro. I mean, Snapdragon 855, pop-up camera, blah, 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 all that. Now, it's plastic instead of glass, but it's $350. And, you know, the user, the user experience is going to be the issue on that phone. But if you could bring that with stock Android to the US, you'd decimate a phone like the the, the Moto G7, right? So, yeah, yeah. I Poco mean, Phone F1 not, last year, right? Not, yeah, but not at not at three hundred and fifty. I mean, the 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 interesting the interesting fact of the U.S. market that we've known for ages is that, and and this is a funny thing that people in other countries are just like, what? Um, is that nobody? So everybody in the U.S. has under two hundred and fifty dollars, or an infinite amount of money. That is and correct. Reason, and the reason for <laughs> that is our credit culture. Yep. That uh, the U.S. is primarily a credit culture. Phones are here primarily sold on uh, monthly payment plans of 24 to 30 months. Often they're not even paid off. They're just traded in mid-payment plan for another phone. And the people left out of that credit culture can't afford something more than $250. So... That whole thriving, and it is a thriving mid-range world that's really popular in India, in Southeast Asia, even in Southern Europe, um, just from an economic trends standpoint, it doesn't really exist here. And the Moto G7s that are selling are the 229 ones. They're under that 250 barrier. No, I look, I absolutely agree with all of you. Saying, I'm just saying that for me, it's like, when I see what I can get in Hong Kong, you know, with Google Play services for two hundred to three hundred dollars, it's it, even though sometimes the user experience like the Redmi is going to be a mm -hmm. Xiaomi UI, you know, blah. But if I, when when I looking at phones that are not like heavily skinned, there's there's a few out there uh, in that price point. I mean, like, why would you buy it? I mean, I reviewed the G7 Power. I thought it was great, particularly the power because the battery life is insane. Like three days, <laughs> I got three days. I literally mm -hmm. got three days. Um, but, um, you know, it's just like, I feel like, we're you know, it's a 720p phone with a Snapdragon 600. And, you know, it's like, I feel like they have a whole different, like, universe of choice up there. And, and you're right that at that point in the U.S., you just go buy a Galaxy S10, you call it a day, right? <laughs> I mean, you yeah. spend that kind of money and uh, because you, you don't care. Or you don't, or you don't buy a Galaxy S10. You end up buying a Galaxy S9 on a payment plan. Oh right, exactly. Um, I'm sending you a link on Skype, by the way. It's my uh, Samsung Wave Bada phone review from Engadget. That's what it was I called. I found it. 
Uh, just uh, I'll put it in show notes. It's gonna be great. Um, anyway, uh, don't let that distract you. But it's for later, for for later reading when you're sitting by the by the barbecue tomorrow or something, whatever you're doing tomorrow. Um, so yeah, I think look, it's interesting. I, I feel like. I feel like we might see some of these Chinese affordable phones come in because we're starting to see it. Look, I'm just playing lately for the last two weeks. I've been playing with the Nubia uh, Red Magic 3, the mm -hmm. gaming phone, right? And and I'm totally, I'm about to write a story for Android Police about this, about how if you take away the fact that this is a gaming phone for a second, right? It's $479. You just erase the fact that it's kind of ugly looking because it's a gaming phone. It's big and it's got like shoulder buttons and all that stuff. At the core, it's a Snapdragon 855, uh, 8 gigs of RAM, uh, 48 megapixel Sony IMX586 based um, phone that kicks serious ass in terms of its performance and has stock Android. And, and you can buy this in the US. It's an officially available phone in the US. So I think we're getting there. We're getting to see some of these phones arrive. And if you don't treat this as a gaming phone, you have a pretty decent flagship that I think undercuts the one the OnePlus 7 non-pro in many ways because the camera is actually really sorted because it's that great Sony sensor that everybody knows how to use now. So everybody has relatively decent software for. And, you know, nice 1080p AMOLED display. It's a 90 hertz display. It's like the the, the OnePlus 7 Pro, but in, in not Quad HD, but in 1080p. But looping back, looping back to the original topic here, the question is really with a lot of these companies, at what point do the companies and do any U.S. retailers and potential offices and support say, you know what, we don't want to have to deal with this U.S.-China enemy of the state trade war situation issue? At what point do you have uh, executives from these companies saying, you know what, we are not going to, you know, we don't want to be strip searched by CBP trying to get yeah. visas. We're not going to, you yeah. know, we're not going to increase our presence in the U.S. because we don't, you know, we, we don't want to have to be, you know, car washed by this trade war. We're happy to just do our business elsewhere. I feel like, yeah, these products are all good. They're all good products. But you have to think about the question of how easy or difficult is it for businesses in certain countries to do business in other countries? And are the governments of those countries trying to make it harder for companies to do business between them? No, you're absolutely right. And I'm not talking about the average customer here. I'm talking about my audience, right? They tend to be tech savvy, tend to buy their phones unlocked. They tend to buy them gray market if they have to, um, you know, in, in, in all kinds of price scale from a hundred to a thousand dollars. So um, in that case, what I'm saying is for them, you know, you look at a phone like the Nubia, it's like this phone is currently at least in the current climate, whether whether it's going to stay like that, I don't know. But this is the second phone in a six month that Nubia has launched in the U.S. officially and you can buy in the U.S. and has support and it is legit and is not gray market. And, and so, you know, you're right. Will that last? I don't know. But it means to me that maybe things are changing or maybe they're not. Maybe you're right. In a snap of a finger, it's going to be like, you know, that the the movie, uh, uh, The Avengers, right? It's just going to be like gone. Everything is going to be, all the Chinese stuff is going to be gone. And that's kind of what happened with Huawei two months ago. And that that's, you're right. If you're a business person, that's a bad scene. You don't want to be part of that. You don't want to plan the future and have to worry about that. But I think for customer consumers today, you can buy these phones, gray market, or in this case, uh, and and you can kind of omit the 
angle of like it's a gaming phone or it's a budget phone or whatever the, the, the marketing angle is and actually get a really good experience as a primary phone. And in my opinion, while the, the G7 Power was an excellent experience for its price point for a completely officially available phone in the US and, and supported by carriers, it supports Verizon and Sprint. Yeah, um, I feel that, you know, it's not really that great of an experience for the money when you look at, you know, Pocophone F1 or, or whatever, or K20 Pro from Redmi. But that's just me. And so I'm kind of like, hmm. And, and also Moto, right? Moto is Lenovo. How long is Moto going to be able to sell in the U.S.? It is really interesting. If, if how, this Chinese thing happens, if this, well, this fear of selling to, you know? It's interesting how certain Chinese companies have managed to Stay successfully <laughs> cloak themselves. Yeah, no, or successfully cloak themselves in ways that others have not. And I would really hold out uh, both... Moto and OnePlus as the two kind of amazing practicers of this, where, I mean, we do, you know, I, I do hear murmurs and rumors against companies like, against companies like Xiaomi, but I don't hear murmurs and rumors about Motorola or OnePlus. It's like the two of them are immune somehow to all of this other stuff that is swirling around between these two countries. And I agree, but counterpoint would be what if, you know, Dom-in-Chief snaps his fingers and says, I want this ban to apply to all Chinese phone makers. Um, he's, or, I mean, he's going to potentially snap his fingers and say, I want this to apply to all Chinese components and manufacturing, and uh, then the price on everything goes up. Yeah, well, that's obviously the big risk. But I mean, look, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm like, it's it's a very, but the bottom line is we're in a very uncertain time in terms of mobile, in terms of, you know, availability and choices of phones. And you should be aware of that as a consumer right now, is that if you are the average American that buys everything on credit, you're going to continue buying an iPhone and a Galaxy S10 and iOS 9, as you said, uh, because it's come down price on a contract and call it a day. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to affect you. But those of us who are phone enthusiasts like Sasha and I and you listening, uh, we, need to, we, need to, uh, we need to keep an eye out because uh, things could change radically very quickly as we saw in the last month. And so on one hand, I'm feeling more positive after this, um, you know, this, this uh, news that uh, our presidents decided that uh, maybe things should change uh, for Huawei. So that let's keep, let's keep, on, an eye on that but I want to talk now maybe Sasha about your kind of parallel and related experience of this FedEx shipment that you became super famous for yeah I didn't intend to start an international <laughs> no I know incident. that <laughs> this is so funny okay so um, we need we needed to update the benchmarks in the Huawei P30 Pro review and uh, we had to send our P30 Pro back because the loan period had expired. But I knew that our UK writer had one. And we deal with him all the time. We ship stuff back and forth between PCMag US and PCMag UK all the time. So I slacked him and I was like, Adam, can you send me the P30 Pro? I need to rerun the benchmarks over here. And uh, he was like, sure. And he goes to Parcel Force, which is the UK's Royal Mail package service and drops it in the mail and gets it back two days later with this angry note on it saying that due to U.S. government policy, you cannot ship Huawei phones, basically. Wow. I, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's on my Twitter. It's the tweet that went viral. 
And uh, the note blamed FedEx because what apparently happens is that you give it to Parcel Force and Parcel Force hands it off to FedEx to get into the U.S. So we tracked it and it looked like Parcel Force had handed it off to FedEx. The package flew to Indianapolis. It spent about five hours in Indianapolis. It got turned back around, uh, went back to Adam, and we are pretty sure at this point that Parcel Force added the note to kind of, you know, to kind of put the blame where they thought it belonged. Um, And then everything just went haywire because I tweeted it out. Um, And what kind of became clear is that nobody understands the way this ban slash embargo slash trade war is working. We got multiple people within FedEx and Parcel Force contradicting each other, generally lower-level people saying, no, 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 it's illegal to put anything Huawei in the mail to the U.S., and then higher-level people saying (laughs) complicated, true things about entity lists and lists of 69 foreign addresses that you're not allowed to send things to, and, you know, the... The, the details of embargoes on doing business with foreign units of this and that, and just the, the ridiculous, incomprehensible weedsiness of it all. Um, and then the Chinese government complains, <laughs> and then FedEx sues the U.S. Commerce Department. Wow. And then, what have you done? <laughs> and then, the uh, so Adam tries to pop the phone in the mail again, First, Parcel Force calls him and says, no, 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 no. And then FedEx calls him an hour later and says, yes, 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 yes. So there still was confusion even at that time. Wow. And then the head of the FedEx station in New York comes and personally delivers me the phone. (laughs) Amazing. But you basically got FedEx to sue the government. Well done, Sasha. Thank you. But it... it, it, (laughs) It just shows how, I mean, the theme of our whole past 20 minutes of conversation has been the uncertainty of this whole situation and how difficult it is to make decisions in this uncertainty. And it just sounds like what was going on in both companies, FedEx and Parcel Force, was just this vortex of confusion. Nobody knew what any of these government dictates meant. Uh, Everybody's terrified of them. Uh, People are terrified that the U.S. government is going to come down on them. They don't know whether or not the U.S. government would come down on them. Um, And then there's this whole backstory involving China being angry at FedEx anyway because of another parcel being misdelivered. And then China maybe wanting to use FedEx as a pawn in trade negotiations. And Ah, man, it is a mess. As I said, Sasha, what have you started well, the it, it was funny because <laughs> it was a it was a slow Friday, and I was kicking around, and I got this slack from Adam with this funny label, and I was like, "Yeah, it's a slow Friday. I'll post something entertaining to Twitter." And this is what happens when you shit post on Twitter, apparently. Yeah, well, you know what? I think uh, it's important that this happened because it 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 certainly helped kind of narrow down some of the you know the, the rules so that people at least are all hopefully on the same page now, right? Uh, in terms of uh, shipping stuff, because can I, I mean, make clear what the rules are? I need to. I think yes, I need to make well, clear what the do. rules are. Please do. This is great. This is what I need on on the show. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so the actual rule is that there are 69 foreign companies 
that U.S. companies are not allowed to directly do business with. And that means you cannot, uh, for instance, send packages to one of these 69 specified foreign offices. And if someone in one of these 69 offices calls up your U.S. business and says, you know, I want to buy 10 paperclips from you, you can't sell them the 10 paperclips. But that is not in any way a ban on Huawei products. It is not a ban on mailing Huawei products between two third parties. It is not a ban on selling Huawei products that you or a third party already held. Um, It is a ban on buying Huawei products directly from a Huawei office in China that is on the list. But that's not how a lot of people do this. So, for instance, Amazon is still selling Huawei phones. They already held them in inventory. They are Amazon already in the U.S. It is perfectly legal for them to do so. Um, But it all got misconstrued because the whole thing is so complicated. It all got misconstrued as Huawei is banned, which is not actually what it is. Well, here you guys have it from the horse's mouth. Thanks, uh, thanks for clarifying that, Sasha. Maybe somebody will listen at FedEx and be like, "You got to record. You're gonna listen to this recording." Mm-hmm. I might grab that as a snippet of audio and put it on Twitter, just to be honest. Okay. Because you know that way people can have it. Um, I did that with uh, Vlad once. He had like he said something absolutely hilarious, and I grabbed it as a teaser for the show. It was awesome. Um, well, look. I mean, you got your phone. You're doing your benchmarks. It all worked yep. out, but somebody needed to go through this, right? I mean, it would have happened to someone else if it wasn't you, right? Yeah, that's the thing. And it probably would have happened to a bunch of people and would have kept happening because it wasn't publicized. And really, it was the publicity that made it come to a head. And so for all we know, if this hadn't gone viral on Twitter, then you would have had all sorts of people who don't have a giant press platform grumbling and being unhappy as opposed to the whole thing happening out in the open and basically getting figured out. Yeah. It's funny, you know, when um, I was, uh, as you remember, recently Honor launched the Honor 20 series, including the Pro, and they couldn't fly me out to the launch event in London. And uh, as a reward, they sent me, this is before the ban took place, uh, they sent me um, a pre-production Honor 20 Pro to play with, which I, you know, you, you'll look, if you look on my YouTube, you'll see the, the, the content. And we talked about it on the podcast several times. And, but as soon as the ban happened, um, they emailed me and said, we need the phone back now. Like, Mm. not like, you know, they had told me that they would replace the phone with a production phone that, you know, until then I could hang on to it, but it was literally like, I was just done all my coverage on it. And I get, and, and I wrote, um, a hands-on story for geek spin for Elena's blog. And, and I got, you know, I basically got this email from them. Like now, like, or we please, here's a way bill, send it back now. And I did. And, um, and I was like, I could see, I could feel the urgency in them. And this is not just like Honor's PR agency. They were writing my ass, but but there was Honor writing my ass about it. And um, and it's interesting that, you know, I'm not going to name names, obviously, but you know, you know who all these folks are. You, you Sasha, you know. Uh-huh. And, and it's like interesting because then I said, hey, well, what about you promised me a, a production device eventually? And they're like, oh, that's not happening now. Like, you're never going to get that phone. And I'm like, damn. 
Like, wow, they're like, they were freaking out. And this was like, you know, the first week after the ban. And then obviously I pinged them right after this thing on Saturday. I was like, hey, so does that mean they're like, oh yeah, it should be all right now. Yeah, because during the ban, they couldn't send, uh, they, they basically could not send production phones from their head office in China to their offices in the U.S. Well, I told them, send it to, the, to Europe or to Hong Kong and then send it to me. Like, how hard is this? Yeah, <laughs> you have offices but, everywhere. yeah, but if they admit they're doing that, then they get potentially accused of trying to evade the ban. Evade, and yeah, that is basically yeah. what ZTE got caught for ages ago. Oh, and yeah, right. they don't want to get in the middle of that. Yeah, no, I get it. So I want to move on to another topic, unless you have some like wise last words for us, Sasha. I, I don't think I have any more wise last words. Wise. Um, I don't know why I said that. Sometimes I'm I'm French. It comes out weird. Okay. Um, <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was like Huawei. Why? Huawei. Yeah, that's right. Uh, whys. Huawei words. Yes. Um, Johnny Ive is leaving Apple. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I have some things I can say, but but most importantly, I just want to cover kind of like what do you think Does that make a difference for Apple? Uh, I mean, he's starting his own design studio and Apple's the first and probably biggest customer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there's been like a whole bunch of drama since then, a Wall Street Journal story. I'm not going to go into that because I don't, I think it's all hearsay at this point, but what's your general take on this? What does it mean for Apple? So I, I have two semi-contradictory takes. And one of them is I would like to see a post Ive Apple because Ive's obsession with constantly making everything thinner, kind of hit its uh, hit its its reductio ad absurdum point, and then started breaking products. Uh, butterfly um, keyboard. <coughs> yeah, exactly the butterfly yeah, keyboard, yeah. and uh, I think he's also it's also responsible for the elimination of the headphone jack, which is still unpopular. Yeah, um, it's responsible for. Uh, pretty much every battery issue that every uh, Apple product has had in terms of the battery life not being longer. Um, yeah. This 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 total constant obsession with making things thinner. Um, so it'll be nice to see how that shifts. But my concern for Apple, as it has been for years, is that Apple and and I know this is a this is an old argument, but Apple doesn't really have a product designer in charge. Apple has a team of people in charge who are now all from the operations and supply chain team. And we've kind of run out of the Steve Jobs ideas. So who is the product visionary now? Right. Who, is the, um, who is the final word on product uh, on, on product vision and beauty and functionality for the future of Apple. And I think uh, we had a period where we were still kind of running on the fumes of the Jobs era. And then Johnny Ive almost like took over for a little while. And, and that's why we had those disastrous laptops. And <laughs> now it's a question of, you know, where is that vision? Or... Are they just going to be efficient? Um, yeah. Because Tim Cook, he's all about efficiency. I don't necessarily see him as a guy who is about 
knowing what's beautiful. I agree. And and I think like you couldn't have said it better than what I think. Honestly, this is a two-sided thing. You're right. That I, on one hand, Johnny Ive has been, he pushed like an agenda, well, agenda, his his vision of what Apple's design should be like. And in many ways, it's it's made the products not worse, but maybe worse, but definitely annoying in some ways. And and but at the same time, I, I feel like that the, maybe there's a potential for lack of direction now in, in design because of it. And even though they have some really good designers on board, you're right. It's a, you need some kind of like you know that Steve Jobs. I think it was Steve Jobs and I've kind of bouncing ideas off of each other and maybe arguing with each other that kind of drove things like you know that super brawn uh, designed iPhone four. To me, the iPhone four is such a design milestone still today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks and feels so amazing, better than the five series and five S SE, etc. Because that went aluminum and it lost something. It lost that that stainless steel was something, and the glass front and back nobody had really done that. And you know, just generally like it, mimicking that brown design, and you couldn't go wrong there. Like it was solid. Size was too small, but that's just my personal opinion. Back then, Apple wasn't interested in making big phones. In fact, all the big phones they've made are kind of mad, in my opinion. Um, but um, I, I would honestly prefer a, an iPhone uh, 10s than a 10s Max if I had to pick one right now in terms of uh, feel in hand, uh, or a 10R even. I think Ives' legacy is going to be in this ongoing concept of erase the hardware. That that I've I've designed hardware was in general about like his his extreme brawn data rams minimalism. Um, turned into being about the hardware being kind of a, a, a transparent window to the software and yeah. becoming thinner and thinner and lighter and lighter because he just wanted us to be holding software in space. And but that, that doesn't work, right? That doesn't well, work because yeah. people, it's like cars, it's like jewelry, like especially watch. I think he, he might have learned something when he did the Apple Watch, which I think is one of the last designs he was really heavily involved in. Mm-hmm. And I think a good, I mean, I'm not, I'm personally don't like the looks of the Apple watch, but I do agree that in the end it ended up being a great design. Um, and the software is heavily what drives that, that great design. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, the customizability of that watch with the bands and the, the materials and colors available. And more importantly, if you look at phones like the OnePlus 7 Pro, the, the, the Galaxy S10, all the flagships today, you know, having a unique, even though they're variations on the same theme of a glass and metal slab, there is enough like variation there that people are like, oh, this is kind of, I like this design better than this design. And so it still matters. And um, I think it should still matter. I feel that hardware, yes, might become less and less important as time moves forward and we're more and more in a software world. I mean, my Tesla Model 3 is a good example of that. It's really an iPad on wheels. And so much of it can be improved and changed with just software updates. It's really remarkable. But yet at the core, the hardware, I'm, you know, some people like the design, some people don't like the design. And you have color choices and you have material choices for the seats and, and, you know, et cetera. And so I think that no, you but can't also, erase the hardware, also, and I think it's important. Okay, when I say erase the hardware, I mean from the from the 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 consumer perception of having right, almost right, no right. hardware. It's incredibly difficult to make an extremely minimalist product that works well. 
Yes. Like, it's it's spectacularly difficult. It's You can say that he intended to do it, and given the butterfly keyboards, he didn't succeed, because it is that difficult to make an extremely minimalist. I would actually argue that the butterfly keyboard was, was, in addition to being a bad design and a mistake, was unnecessary, because there are so many laptops out there made by other companies today that are thin and as light as the MacBook 12-inch that I'm recording this show on right now, mm-hmm. that have full travel keyboards and have just the same battery life and, in fact, have better performance. And looked very similar. You know, in fact, I would say compare the Huawei uh, laptops, like the mm-hmm. MacBook X Pro with the Mac, the, the MacBook Pro. You are looking at, phone, at designs that are so similar and so similar in size uh, that I don't see any reason why Apple wouldn't have continued using uh, scissor keys. And so, you know, I think that was kind of just this excess of like, um, yeah, let's shave a millimeter for the sake of shaving a millimeter mm-hmm. that they didn't need to shave. You know, it's like that was a perfect example of not of how not to do this. But I would say what I, what I want to keep my eyes out for now is the uh, it's it's basically whatever Apple's next product line is going to be. The apocryphal AR product, I think, is the is the yeah. one that the one that people are most wondering about. And the apocryphal AR product, okay, so so Johnny Ive-inspired designs are going to keep going through the existing product lines for at least three, three, four more years. Yeah, but this apocryphal sure. AR product, which is fresh and new and from zero, what is that going to look like? What statement is that going to make? Is that going to be a post-Ive product? I am super curious about those those questions. Yeah, me too. I mean, I... We are all kind of waiting for somebody to to crack that AR nut, right? In a sense of like, to me, I'll I'll be honest with you that I think the next logical product that we need to bring to the consumer space is a pair of smart glasses. And what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is glasses that look normal and are very customizable in terms of look and feel, because that's a super personal thing, more probably just as much as a watch uh, that can uh, that can superimpose some content to, into your real life. I'm not saying that this is something that you would game with. Like I'm not thinking entertainment per se. That might be something you can do, but I'm thinking more like something you wear and it just points you to the right in the right direction when you're in a city you don't know. And and you can you know see very s- subtle but very important like reminders and things. Some people are gonna love that. And you know I'm not seeing a few. I don't want a future where you know use everything you look at as an ad displayed on it and i think apple will definitely not make that happen if anybody does it they're not going to do it right that way however if google does it i can see it covered in ads <laughs> but or facebook but uh but i mean i think that, that that to me is what i think this ar product is or should be I, I don't think it should be like a hololens specialty product you know yeah and 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 apple apple could call them the eye <laughs> the eye just the little eye yeah, just the eye, the Apple eye. Apple eye. Huh. Interesting. I mean, based on their naming convention lately, which has been really quite terrible, <laughs> I mean, iPhone tennis Max. Like, I want to shoot who came up with this at Apple. Epic 4G Touch. I'll, sh- I'll shoot them with a Nerf gun because I'm, uh, I'm not a big fan of shooting people, but I just really feel like, like, what the hell were they thinking? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, ah. Uh, Max. I mean, of all the things they could have called it, you know, they had plus already. Uh, that was kind of awkward. Max is even worse. Pro would be okay because we were a little more used to their pro line of products. I don't know. It's just weird. But it's also, it's also, uh, I mean, you were, 
I, I, I remember you were around at the time. It also harkens back to the unfortunate days of six to seven word phone names because uh, four different companies <laughs> yes. had to throw their own word into them. Samsung Sprint Epic 4G Touch Max. Samsung Galaxy S2, Epic 4G Touch. That's what it was. Thank you. Yes. Jesus. Oh, it's giving me a headache just thinking back of these days. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, we've 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 been doing this for a while. So okay, so what what, what else? That that's Johnny Ive. What else did you have on the list there? Well, I had uh, related to Johnny Ive. The Mac Pro is going to be made in China. It turns out, you know, the last Mac Pro was made in the U.S. So this is kind of weird to me. I mean, no, it's not weird because in the normal universe, if there was a parallel universe where all of this madness around China hadn't happened in the last mm -hmm. few years, of course you make that in China. But in this universe, I'm like, maybe you shouldn't make it in China because it's a specialty product. It's expensive anyway. Um, and, you know, you have to deal with this weird political climate. So I don't know. It's, it's just an interesting tidbit of news that they're going to make this Mac, this computer in China. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I do think it's interesting. And in that case, why not make it in, I don't know, Taiwan. Taiwan. Thailand. Yeah, exactly. Like it does. Exactly. Or... Vietnam or something. Yeah. Weird. Exactly. There, there, there's, there's a lot more electronics manufacturing now coming to Thailand and Vietnam because of low labor costs and because they are relatively politically uncontroversial countries. Exactly. But anyway, that's, I just want to mention it because in case you didn't catch the news, this is weird and it's kind of in line with everything else we've been talking about. But moving on to something that I think is more interesting to you and me, Sasha, and this is kind of something I want to spend 10 minutes on, maybe 15 minutes on. It's generally the state of 5G in the US, but mostly like because you, you recently posted an article written by you that where you were testing T-Mobile's 5G specifically, in New York City specifically, and I am a T-Mobile customer, and last week on the show we talked about the T-Mobile 5G announcement, mm -hmm. and so you could give us what your thoughts are. Is it good? Yeah, so T-Mobile has... <laughs> T-Mobile has a, a very funny, very inconsistent set of 5G builds that it's experimenting with. And you have to understand, all of the 5G right now out there is basically experimental. It's super bleeding edge. None of the devices really work properly. We found out uh, this week that basically all of the early millimeter wave phones are overheating during the summer. Um, the, <laughs> yeah, the, of course. The uh, the the builds are all spotty and incomplete. All the base stations are getting new software upgrades every like two weeks that radically debug them or change their potential. It is a it is way 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 too early for anything anyone except extreme enthusiasts to pay attention to this. But we are extreme enthusiasts. That's and, why I'm talking about it. Like yeah. I I know that I would never recommend anybody out there buy five G right now at all. But I just you know. Because they announced it and you tested it, I was just like, well, like you've, I know you played with Verizon 5G mm -hmm. when you were in Chicago. Have you played with AT&T 5G? They had a thing in LA recently. I, I, I messed with AT&T 5G a little in Dallas, but what T-Mobile in New York really showed me is what it takes to cover a city with millimeter wave. It's and insane, right? It's like basically every lamppost. It is, it is, well, in the case of T-Mobile, it is every two to three blocks. Wow. And... What happened with T-Mobile is T-Mobile had this really fascinating, unique, existing situation in New York City, where T-Mobile already had a cell site every two to three blocks because of a weird legacy fact from the 1990s. And let me, let me, let me take you back well, to that. I want to hear that legacy fact because, you know, this is what we talk about on this show. So yes. please do not spare us the legacy fact. 
Okay, so uh, T-Mobile is uh, T-Mobile is the merger of two 1990s cell phone companies called OmniPoint and VoiceStream. Yeah, and I was a VoiceStream customer. That's how I became a T-Mobile customer. Yeah, VoiceStream VoiceStream was in the West largely, and OmniPoint was largely in the East. OmniPoint only had a 10 megahertz 1900 uh, a 10 megahertz allotment of 1900 megahertz for GSM. Oh yes, I see that where that's going. Which is a tiny amount of spectrum that is relatively short range, and they had a license for New York City. So the only way they could provide voice services in the 90s was to chop the entire city up into tiny, tiny cells and install a GSM cell site every two blocks to serve OmniPoint. And it basically worked. They had great spectrum reuse across their small cell network in Manhattan. And OmniPoint existed, and then it merged into T-Mobile. And T-Mobile finds itself 20 years later with a huge number of New York City cell sites and this, this great, great density that it's had for 20 years. And yeah, I so, believe that John Ledger's words at that point when he found that out were, booyah! Exactly. And so where Verizon is hustling to slap new 5G millimeter wave sites on every lamppost in Chicago, and it's a tremendous amount of lift, and it's a tremendous amount of work, and it's a tremendous amount of new hardware and siting and et cetera, et cetera, T-Mobile can just go up to all of its existing sites in New York that it already has proprietary access to and slap a millimeter wave panel on them. And so as a result you get this really good coverage, but it's not scalable or repeatable to other cities. It's a unique thing about this T-Mobile built in New York. Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting, by the way, as an aside from what you said about back then, um, OmniPoint and and VoiceStream, it's interesting that you know that OmniPoint came to New York because what became Fido in Canada had come to Toronto and Vancouver, right? The entrepreneurs who basically said in Canada, who said, hey, why don't we start just an urban GSM network based mm-hmm. on European GSM tech, specifically because it's kind of nano cell, pico cell, like very, very small, very frequent cells. I mean, when GSM was designed back in the day, that was the idea. Europe was primarily urban. They wanted to cover urban areas first. GSM was optimized for basically a cell a block. Mm-hmm. That's how it was going to be. So so that's how it started with 1800 in Europe megahertz. And then Canada picked that up with, with what eventually became FIDO and then got acquired. I don't remember what it's become after that. It's part of FIDO, Rogers now. Yeah, FIDO, when it started, was a GSM, the first GSM network in Europe, North America. And it was in Toronto and then later in Vancouver. And it was using a per block cell on 1900 megahertz. And I think the folks who started OmniPoint in New York were inspired by that to do it because they like, we can do our own thing. And then, you know, here we are, right? But I mean, it's a very interesting history. Um, we've talked about it like in little episodes like this throughout the show that that the, the history of cell you know, rollout in North America is really quite fascinating. But it's it's also so crazy how a decision made, kind of a smart, unique, strange decision made for 2G turns out to be a deciding factor in having great 5G. It's interesting to me that the intent with 2G back then to have like a very, very dense cell, very short range cell topology actually has become 
necessary with millimeter now yeah and we are benefiting from it in many places and i think europe is going to benefit although europe is not going millimeter anytime soon but it's interesting i think i think um I'm I'm fascinated by this. I, I what's the what's the performance like? I know it's as you said, you know, it's very early days. But what have you seen, say, compared to Verizon and AT&T? So the problem that T-Mobile has in New York is that T-Mobile only has a hundred megahertz of millimeter wave, and okay. uh, speed is all about how much spectrum you have. And Verizon and AT&T typically have between four hundred and eight hundred megahertz in any location. So. Right. So when I was testing T-Mobile in New York, I was seeing speeds, you know, generally in the 300s, 400s of megabits, which is good. It is definitely better than you mostly expect from LTE right now. It's basically what you expect when you have 150 megahertz of spectrum. It's not the 1.6 gigabits, which we saw with, uh, we, we actually just posted our results from Providence, Rhode Island with Verizon, which we tested yesterday. And we saw mm -hmm. 1.6 gigabits, and that's what you can do with 400 megahertz of spectrum. And now um, now T-Mobile has 400 megahertz in Cleveland, oddly enough. And I am curious what the performance would be there. But it's, it's entirely down to, I was explaining this to somebody else recently, that 5G isn't magic. It's hertz on hertz. It is not yep. that much more efficient than 4G. What it just enables is uh, the ability to use much larger channel sizes and a lot more spectrum. But you have to have the lot more spectrum to be able to make that difference. And it's the same reason why, uh, as an aside, an IoT and mobile to mobile, we're seeing we we've seen a push away from two G into four for GLTE when the data speeds and the data throughputs required are extremely low. Like I need to send uh, the temperature to from a base station to a cloud service every hour, mm -hmm. like a single temperature. Like that's why two bytes, right? Like. Why would you need 4GLT? Well, it turns out that's more efficient because you have a burst, very short burst of super high speed data that contains all of it. That's it. You never have to worry about it broken down over time. But right? we're also, there, there's, another, there's another factor in terms of network design that's coming into play, which is we are about to move into a world of DSS, dynamic spectrum sharing. Exactly. And uh, that is going to be the carriers. So it turns out that part of the 5G spec is that 5G and 4G can share the same band and dynamically change how much of that band they use. But 5G mm -hmm. cannot share that with 2G. 2G has to be off in its own lane. So, yeah, because it, it's dirty. I mean, right. comparatively, right? Right. So, uh, so by switching a lot of these devices to 4G, they can then coexist with a 5G network 5G around them entry. for yeah, other yeah, devices. Right. All I was just trying to point out is that if you're like, say, at the airport and you're trying to download that movie before you get on the plane, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're on 4G, you need kind of some relatively sustained transfer speeds at those 4G speeds to get that movie in a timely manner. With, with the 5G, it might take you just as long to get the movie, but if you look at how the transmission is happening, it's just bursts, right? It finds, like, it might not have a continuous really good signal, but on those bursts where it gets a good signal, it can send so much more data that the end result is the same amount of time to download, potentially, because you have maybe a weak 5G signal. But at the same time, you, you, get, you get your data, right? You get it. You get it in fast bursts 
every now and then versus having a required continuous solid signal for a longer time. It is interesting and important that you mention airports because I also think a lot of people, when they lament how difficult it is to create millimeter wave coverage and, you know, uh, how could you possibly have a big network with cells that only have a 600 foot radius and they do only have a 600 foot radius, um, that you're missing things like in, in the eventual future, uh, the target of millimeter wave is going to be places like airports and the cells are going to be inside on the concourse pointing yeah. 600 feet down the concourse of the airport. That's where millimeter wave will be strongest. It isn't, uh, it isn't yeah. really designed to blanket entire metro areas. At the shopping mall. Yeah, you at know? the shopping mall, at the in on the college campus, at the sports yeah. stadium, um, you know, in the government offices, uh, places. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Those are high density places. Exactly, it's places. Or at uh, most cities have a park or a square, which tends to be absolutely full of people. Uh, yeah. Those kinds of places are where millimeter wave happens. The U.S. carriers are hammering on millimeter wave right now because they, except for Sprint, they currently have no mid-band strategy. And that's, right. that's a huge gap in the U.S. 5G play right now because mid-band is what is and should cover most of the areas with 5G. So what, so does it, are you saying that when you say mid-band, you mean sub-six? Yeah, I mean sub-six, and I think in the 5G world, I think what we're specifically, you know, primarily what we refer to in the U.S. as C-band. Right, yeah. It's interesting because, so you're saying Timo Reno doesn't have any sub-six rollout of any kind. I mean, it's probably planned, Well, T-Mobile right? has a very, very sub-six rollout, and then T-Mobile... Like yeah, T-Mobile has what's going to be probably 30 to 60 megahertz of 600. I was going to say the 600 megahertz band, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's not going to be that's not going to be a transformative change over 4G just because there is not very much of it. Yeah, I know, and not only that, but I mean it's not the speeds are not going to be quite as good on that as you can on millimeter obviously. Um but it's going to be helpful in rural areas. 600 will reach quite far, so it's going to be good for yeah, that. Uh, yes and no. I mean, the thing is, it'll be a 30 to 40% lift over 4G 600. Yeah. Yeah. Just because there's not a lot more, because it's it's not more megahertz. It's not a yeah, wider channel. Yeah, you can't channel. squeeze more in there yet until until we come up with better coding techniques. Yeah. But it's interesting. I I think that um, I'm I'm excited that they have it in LA, T-Mobile, and um, that I'm hoping it comes to Seattle soon. Simply because those are two markets that are kind of dis uh, relatively close distance to both both my residences mm -hmm. in terms of being able to test and try it out. Um, but I told I, I told the T-Mobile folks that I was like, if you uh, can hook me up with a device at some point, I'd be happy to test to go down there and test it. I mean, various, I uh, I want to do I want to do more testing of the Sprint midband rollouts because I said, as I said, I do think midband is the sweet spot for right. covering entire cities. And with 100, 120 to one hundred and eighty megahertz in midband, Sprint has the potential to do big citywide decent speed rollouts and uh i think maybe once i get back from vacation later in july i need to head out to one of those and see how it's coming along for sure um so sprint won't have millimeter or will they also have millimeter sprint does not own any millimeter whoa mm -hmm. crazy oh huh. 
tough for them. Well, there you go, folks. You have it from the authority. I mean, I really do think you are the authority when it comes to 5G because, you know, one of the things PCMag does is a really thorough testing of network performance all over the country every year. And you obviously are on the forefront of the 5G testing right now, independent testing, which I think is really interesting. Thanks. Yeah, we just had our, our fastest mobile networks project came out. It was our 10th year that came out on June 20th. And uh, we were only testing 4G for that drive test. We go to 30 US cities, we drive around rural areas as well. Um, and I, I think this is going to be the last year that that was primarily a 4G project. I think next year, that's going to be a 5G project. Uh, can you, uh, at some point later after the show, send me a link with, where I can put in the show notes the, the faster mobile project so people can check it out? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of crazy this year. AT&T won for the first time in six years. Interesting. There you go. Well, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Um, Related-ish, maybe, because it's New York City, and maybe because I'm sure there'll be a 5G version of this device. We have now pretty much confirmed that Samsung is launching the Note 10 in August on the 7th. In New York City. Yeah, how about that? Uh, how about that invite? It basically looks like I'll poke your eye out. That's right. So I'll be there. Obviously, you'll see me, Sasha. I'm gonna make the effort to come uh, because last year I missed the Note Nine. I could make it, and I regretted it. And I missed the Galaxy S10, even though it was in San Francisco, because I was already in Barcelona, and they did it such last minute that mm -hmm. I couldn't change my plans. So I'm going to be there. I'm looking forward to the Note 10, even though I'm he we're hearing all this crazy stuff about no headphone jack and whatever else that we're going to be pissed off about. But, you know, progress, I guess. Courage. Courage. Oh, God. Uh, speaking of, uh, so that was just a side note to confirm uh, that, yes, the rumors we heard and discussed in previous shows about the Galaxy Note 10 launching and on August 7th in New York City are correct. Um, yeah, it's going to be, I believe, 4 p.m. August 7th uh, at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Exciting. Uh, so uh, another, another interesting tidbit of news I kind of caught kind of peripherally from the corner of my eye while browsing for news was that there's, LG is, is actually globalizing or launching the G8S, uh, which was a, a, a kind of like a foreign product until now in, in North America and other markets globally. Um, and so the G8S is interesting because it adds the one camera we all wanted in the back of the phone, which is a tele-lens. Well, I mean, I personally always prefer ultra-wide angle, but it already had that. So um, now it's basically going two cameras to three cameras in the back, getting that tele-lens that the V50 has and the V40 had. And, but it's losing the quad HD display for a 1080p display. So it's very interesting. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, honestly, I think it's I think it's smart. I think that uh, people really want as many camera options as they can as they can get, and I don't really think that the vast majority of people can tell the difference between a 1080p display and a Quad HD display in a lot of circumstances. I think that that people will gain more from the additional camera than they would lose from losing the Quad HD display. Uh, the question Absolutely. is really around pricing and whether LG needs to start undercutting Samsung again to be relevant. LG got and to a point- And they do, but they do because it goes on sale so quickly. They don't yeah. do because they do it up front. And I think what you mean is doing it up front. Yeah. Yeah, because it got to a point where they started matching Samsung's upfront prices, and that was around the point when people completely stopped buying LG flagships. 
Look, I reviewed the G8 this year for, for, for Geekspin, for Elena's blog, and I really liked it. But my review might not sound that positive simply because I couldn't, in the zeitgeist at the time, with the other phones that were around, say this is a good phone for the money. And I knew it was going to go down in price because sales happened, but I couldn't say that at the time because at the time it wasn't the case. And, you know, I still think it's a pretty good phone. I felt that the size, the form factor was really phenomenal. I felt like the design, even though it's very generic, I thought was very good because it's just kind of, it fits anybody and anything. And, and uh, honestly, everything was solid about it, except that I wish I had three cameras in the back. So that solves that. And yeah. I can totally go down to 1080p. I, I don't mind 1080p at all. Like, I think that Quad HD is overkill, frankly. And in fact, if you look, my Galaxy S10 and my S9, so 10, I have a 10 plus and 9 plus. Um, both of them are set to 1080 as default in the software because I don't care and I want the battery life. So done. So why do I even have Quad HD? You know, like who cares? LG makes really good phones, but they need to understand that they are really now competing with BBK, not with Samsung. And they need to start exactly. pricing like BBK. Though the LG product I really want to see in the US is that crazy second screen case for the V50 because wouldn't yeah. that make the V50 interesting? It would be really interesting. It'd be like, uh, it would be unfolding Samsung on their own fold. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, if, if LG could get that out in the US, I think it's already out in the UK. I think it is It is out. I mean, in some parts, yeah, you could buy, you certainly buy, buy at gray market, right? Yeah, now, if, if they you could, have a V50. If they could get it out here in advance of the Galaxy Fold, it would just be such a great, you know, just, just, just finger up to Samsung. <laughs> be such a hoot. Speaking of the fold, even though it's not on the topics, do you think we're going to see that or you think they're going to completely redesign it and it's going to be called something else and look different? Well, it was just, uh, I, I think a story just came out today saying that they have redesigned it in terms of they're just shrink, essentially shrink wrapping the whole thing now so you can peel the screen protector off. But um, I think it's going to come out late. I think it's going to come out in a small batch. Um, I think that it's. Uh, I think that they are just going to push a small number of them out to say they did, to say they've accomplished it, and move on because it's 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 getting late for it's getting late for that now, and and for the Huawei for that matter. Uh, Huawei's answer to the 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 Mate X is delayed, right? Yeah, the Mate X was delayed officially. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody can do you know nobody can do mass quantity properly functioning folding phones yet they all jump the gun on that i agree well i'm just curious because you know like there's been some news floating around and and i think you're right they're going to launch it it's going to be pretty similar to what we saw it's going to be they're going to fix some of the technical issues they had and it's going to be buried they're going to bury it yep. they're going to basically just like just like just launch it from the corners out we did it and then you know let's move on oh here's here's the next shiny like the next day they'll be like oh look this is what we're working on next mm -hmm. And uh, maybe they'll even show that at the Note 10 event. Wouldn't that be hilarious? If they show their next folding phone before they've even launched their first folding phone? No, I think what's going to happen <laughs> at the Note 10 event is that they're going to, I think at the Note 10 event... Reveal the, no reveal the fold. <laughs> they will, well, they'll, they'll, they'll put the fold on sale, essentially. That's what I'm saying. At the Note 10 event. And yeah, and they'll let it be eclipsed by the Note 10. Exactly. Yeah. Totally. Bury it. Yeah. Lovely. Oh, man. Samsung. You'd think they would have learned from how, like, I know it was a much bigger issue, but the Note 7 on fire issue, but the way they handled that was so bad. And I think the way they handled uh, Fold wasn't much better, a little bit better, but not much. I mean, the, 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Samsung Samsung has seems to have a um an ongoing issue with not being able to Apple says a thousand no's to every yes. Maybe Samsung needs a few more no's in the process. Yeah, no for sure. Well, listen, we should wrap it up. Thanks for being on the show. I want you to tell the world where they can find you. Your social media handles, of course, you write for PC Mag. Maybe you want to pimp uh, a specific um, URL or something. Let people know where they where they can find you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm at PCMag.com. And uh, one way you can track what I'm doing is on our Race to 5G page at PCMag.com slash 5G, where you'll find all of our 5G coverage and this really fun little horse race tracker showing how far the U.S. carriers have come in uh, their move towards 5G. So PCMag.com slash 5G, and it's called Race to 5G. Um, And then my primary social media is Twitter. Um, I love interacting with people on Twitter. I am, you know, frequently interacting with my colleagues and uh, vendors, and that's where I can put out, uh, I, I put out a lot of my latest coverage, and that's just Sasha Segan on Twitter. You can, you can put how to spell my name in the show notes. Yeah, no problem. We will do that. Um, yeah, you guys should absolutely follow Sasha. I mean, it's kind of critical that you follow Sasha, in fact. Uh, you know, he's been around for so long, and I learned so much from being, you know, friends with him and colleagues, and you know, we weren't colleagues in the same company, but colleagues as journalists. Um, and hopefully you feel the same way. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, you're... You're an icon in this industry, Miriam. You are. Oh, thank you, Sasha. There's a relatively small group of people who I feel are some of the pillars that mobile tech still revolves around. And you are one of those pillars. Thank you so much. And I feel the same about you, honestly. Seriously, like I think that, you know, you are kind of specialize in areas where I don't have quite the same, you know, experience and visibility. Like the whole network side is really really amazing like how what a you know good understanding you had yeah i'd completely forgotten the name of the company in new york city that merged into c-mobile for example so you see there you go um i kind of knew the story but it was kind of buried in the back of my head anyway you folks know where to find me i'm at tankgirl on twitter that's t-n-k-g-r-l i'm also tankgirl t-n-k-g-r-l on instagram uh it's uh, like the comic book character tankgirl without the vowels drop the vowels and uh, that's how you'll find me um and uh, also there's a YouTube channel that goes with a podcast, um, youtube.com slash Miriam with no space, my whole name spelled out. Uh, if you want to know how to spell my name, just go to Twitter, right? And you'll see my name spelled out. So you'll know how to spell out the YouTube channel. And finally, of course, the podcast exists at mobiletechpodcast.com. If this is the first time you're listening and you're wondering how to subscribe, there's an RSS feed at that URL, mobiletechpodcast.com. And of course, all the major podcasting platforms and apps have the podcast. Just look for us at uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Overcast, TuneIn Radio, and even Spotify is where you can find me now. So... No excuses. Hopefully you subscribe. Subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. Tell your friends about the podcast and channel. Like the videos and all that good stuff. Uh, Interact with me in the comments on YouTube. Interact with me on Twitter for comments on the show here. Uh, etc etc i also want to thank our sponsor audible Audible audible.com is the platform for audiobooks if you love audiobooks if you like books but maybe you i always use this example but you're a delivery driver and you can't listen uh, sorry read physically a a paper or e-paper display listen to the books instead and, and audible 
gets you hooked up there. With lots of choice, lots of selection. Some of the authors read their own books, which I think is fantastic. Uh, Mobile Tech Podcast has a special deal for you. So if you're not yet an Audible subscriber, you can get a 30-day free trial and a free book out of it. Uh, and the URL for that is in the show notes. It's audibletrial.com slash mobiletech. That's audibletrial.com slash mobiletech. Again, I want to thank Audible for being a longtime sponsor. They are really the best platform for audiobooks. Check them out. If you like books, you ought yourself to give it a try for 30 days and a free book. And Sasha, thanks again for being on the show. Super awesome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'd, I'd love to come back on when we've got a little more 5G around to talk about. I think we will do that probably um, in the fall, maybe. Let's see how it goes. Maybe not, if not in the spring. I mean, I'll definitely have you on. It's not your first time on the show anyway, so you'll be back. Yes, I will. Indeed. So, folks, stay tuned. We'll have another show next week, as usual. And until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.